This episode contains quite a few swears. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniecks. On today's episode, we have author of the recent novel Down Among the Dead, KB Wagers. Katie, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was just saying before we started recording that, Katie, you're the first guest I've had on this show who was not somebody I knew before I started recording the show. And that's a pretty cool moment for me as like, I'm doing real radio now, or I guess real podcasting. And I really appreciate you being on. Uh, Katie, you're going to be reading from Reluctant Heroes, is that right? That is correct. All right. And is there anything that we need to know about this going in? Um, So this is a space opera, what I call um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy meets Battlestar Galactica, that I wrote 10 years too early for the space opera trend. (laughs) Oh. which and is I, a shame because I like that pitch. Right? And I, I, I wrote it back in uh, 2010-ish, I think, and shopped it out around 2011, probably. It is about a former mercenary who is basically on the run. Her people are supposed to die after their mates get killed, and her mate was killed in a fight with these creatures called the year. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, as things happen, Elsie did not die and did not submit to what they call the fade um, and took off. And so when the book starts, which is the excerpt that I'm about to read, um, she is working in like some dusty, dirty little spaceport and basically just kind of floating along in her life. She doesn't really want to do anything but mm-hmm. she also doesn't want to die so you know i mean mood <laughs> right <laughs> like let's just keep going <laughs> yeah all right well ready when you are okay i remember the days before brant's death with startling clarity there were moments in my life with him etched into my mind with the painful accuracy of a tattoo gun The moment when I lost him is blurred with flame, pain, and the screaming sound of year cannonballs, and the days following are nothing more than empty agony. I was supposed to fade. Brent was my mate, and the grief should have eaten my soul. Stars know I sometimes felt like I was being devoured alive by a vicious beast. I was supposed to fade. That is what my people do, what has always been done when you lose the love of your life. But I didn't fade. Not even close. To this day, I don't know why. I don't know what pulled me from the quiet abyss and dragged me screaming back into my life. I only know that I was trapped in my life, too afraid to let the executioners have their say, too wrapped up in my own grief to truly live. And then a prophecy blew what was left of my world apart. It's been my experience that most bar fights start because of an unhealthy combination of boredom and booze. (laughs) One or the other generally doesn't result in broken furniture and limbs, but when you mix them just right. 
I like fights. Brant used to say that I wasn't happy unless I had an enemy in my sights, and he was probably right. The world made sense in a fight. There were enemies and allies. You took out the enemies and watched your allies' backs. No complications, no confusion. Just the glorious slow-motion play of thrown punches and spattering blood. My opponents always moved in slow motion, and I hadn't ever questioned it. In fact, I'd been two years into Raddock's core training before I realized it wasn't like that for everyone. Right now, the world around me had slowed to a crawl. My left hook caught the stocky bearded man opposite me in the cheek, driving his head directly into Tolliver's granite chest. Tolliver grabbed the man and further abused his skull by bouncing it off the floor. (laughs) I threw up my hand, stopping the roundhouse kick an inch from my head and locked my hand onto the none-too-clean leather boot of my next opponent. His brown eyes widened in surprise, and I gave him a wink as I pushed upward. (laughs) He flailed backwards, arms windmilling. Gravity took over, and the table behind him shattered under his bulk. For a moment, a shocked silence filled the bar. Then the patrons around us wisely went back to what they were doing. (laughs) I bent over the unfortunate drunkards on the floor. When I say you've had enough, you've had enough, the men groaned. They were unwilling, or unable, to argue. Either way, it didn't matter to me. I turned from them without a second thought. Nicely done, Am. Tolliver looked down at me, a smile twisting his scarred face. At over two meters, he had to bend in half to get eye to eye with me. (laughs) Tolliver hadn't wanted Ike to hire me, and my height had only been part of the problem. But after I'd stopped him from getting stabbed in the back my first week there, he'd warmed up to the idea of a reject porcelain doll like me watching his back. Idiot space pilots, I rolled my eyes. You wouldn't think it was so hard to sit down and mind their own business like I asked them to. Tolliver chuckled a second time. The deep rumble sounded like a squad of H-17s taking off, and for a moment I found myself thinking of the Radix fighter jets. shake of my head dispelled the nostalgia. That part of my life was long gone, and it was best to just let it be. I'll clean it up. Tell Keep to take the damage out of the guy's creds. Tolliver said, tapping a massive hand on my shoulder. I nodded and headed for the bar, patrons scrambling over each other to get out of my way and making me grin. The awe was ultimately to be expected, and I took it as my due. I didn't look like much. That was Tolliver's other problem with me. My heart-shaped face and light green eyes were considered attractive in most parts of the universe. I was lean and muscled, but it was my damn face that people focused on. And they thought I was harmless. Usually, (laughs) right up until I hit them. And then they started paying attention. Five years of training with Radox Corps and a subsequent 44 years of battle experience against the Ur were stacked on top of my survival in the slums of Karis. Only idiots are the really desperate messed with me. I kicked ass and didn't bother with names. On good days, I had neither the patience nor the interest to engage in what most people considered polite social behavior. And the last two years hadn't qualified as good by any stretch of the imagination. The last two years were what Brant would have called a tour of the five planets of hell with bare feet and a spent UT-87. Brant, a gash of pain tore through me. I was thinking of him too damn much tonight. I was so shocked by the sudden feeling that I stumbled on my way to the bar. I had no right to feel, no right to be here. I'd been a cold, empty shell since Brant's death. 
The scent of the wayfarer overwhelmed me, and I fought to drag in a breath past the stink of space dust, unwashed human evolves, and greasy food. I was unfaded, a pariah among my people, a useless ghost lost among the stars. This wasn't right, but then nothing about me was right. The emptiness after I lost my mate was expected. What threw everyone at Raddock's core, me included, for a loop, was the fact that I didn't follow Brandt. I didn't fade. I tried. Stars know I tried. Initially, the grief split me apart, and I wanted nothing more than for it all to be over. Then there was nothing. I felt nothing. The days stretched into weeks, then months, and then the whispering started. Unfaded. My superiors at Radix Corps did the only thing they could. The contract on my life was a mercy in their eyes. The unfaded didn't follow their loved ones to death. They just drifted like ghosts. Driven mad by their loss and their inability to follow, they turned on their fellow fanes and caused more grief and misery. They were hollow, soulless beings who clung to life to the detriment of all. They wanted to end my life before its time, and in that moment of realization, I fled. I could face the possibility of life without Brant, but ironically, I couldn't face my own execution. So I disappeared the only way I knew how, vanishing into the sprawl of the universe before they could kill me. Why I didn't want to die, I still don't know. Something drove me on, and there were days I hated this cold fire inside me. For two years I'd been on the run, always one step ahead of the core. I'd shut down the implants in my head so they couldn't track me, fallen off the radar so hard it rattled my teeth, and stayed on the move. I'd taken a chance here on Carcelon three months ago and had been bouncing Patron's head against the Wayfarer's floor since Ike offered me a job. Hmm. Wayfarer was a dark, dingy dive, common enough for backwater system stops. People were always passing through, never caring much about the atmosphere except that it was breathable. They just wanted a drink and something to eat, and occasionally a place to crash for a few days before they moved on. I blew out a breath and dragged both hands through my white blonde braids. Restless ache had started in my gut two days ago. Maybe it was time for me to move on, too. I rubbed my hands over my arms, trying to ease the twitchiness. As I headed for the bar... A man sitting near the back door caught my eye. He lounged casually in the shifting shadows, a drink in one hand. 178 centimeters, I judged, and well-built. Rangy, though, not bulked up like a Venice Beach muscle head. <laughs> his hair was black or dark brown. It was hard to tell in the light. And his boots were scuffed and his clothing patched in places, but not falling apart like a truly desperate man. He smiled at me, a quick curve of firm lips as he raised his glass. I turned away. One table, four glasses, and a chair keep. I flexed my aching right hand. And a 15 cred tip for me because my hand fucking hurts. <laughs> the massive bartender chuckled. We'll do, Am. He slid a glass my way. I snagged it and wove through the crowd the sharp, sweet smell of PGB chasing away the heavy scents of the wayfarer. Against my better judgment, I headed for the man's table. He stood, a smile on his face. Yep. 178 centimeters on the dot. I gave a <laughs> smile of my own, although mine was more wary. His voice carried easily through the din of the bar, a strange tenor with the barest hint of gravel under the surface. It's good to see you again, he said. 
I stumbled in surprise. Well, that was news to me. Again, I frowned at him, shoving my braids out of my face. We had a nice conversation last night. You weren't here last night. My hand strayed to the gun on my hip. I'm making you uneasy. Accept my apologies. He tipped his head, and when he came up, the light hit his face, revealing his multicolored eyes. Stars. The oath slipped out before I could stop it, and I blinked at him. Fens were rare creatures, almost unheard of in this sector of space. They were one of the few non-human races who'd survived the Xeno Wars, and one of the fewer still who'd forgiven us for our ancestors' arrogance. Still, they were dangerous, unpredictable, and it was almost a given that the one I was staring at was a good deal older than me. I am Jenkit Ruse, Captain of the Impossible Star, Sergeant. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. He flashed me a grin that made him look boyish and extended a hand. Curiosity overrode caution, and I took the hand. The warmth of his steady palm against mine made my heart skip a beat, and something flowed between us. For the second time that evening, feelings flooded through me after so much emptiness. I jerked my hand away, further losing my balance. What did you call me? Sergeant Amelin. It suits you better than Amyella, which is the name you gave Ike, I believe. The smile on his face never wavered as he took my arm and leaned in, whispering in my ear, Bode says you've got trouble coming. <laughs> his words were still echoing in my head when that trouble burst right through the door. Raddock's core, nobody move. Familiar black and silver armor flowed into the bar and I froze. They'd found me. Not us, Sergeant, Jenkins said. I can't. Stay here and let them fry your brains with a laser? He finished my sentence. Correct. You know you don't want to, or you wouldn't have bolted in the first place, Amelin. Come on. I let him pull me towards the rear exit, but not before I tossed back my drink. From the looks of thing, I was going to need it. <laughs> I have things still here. I knew it was stupid to risk my life, but the digital photo of Brant was all I had left of him. I couldn't leave it behind. It's taken care of. They're on my ship, he replied, tugging me down the dank hallway. Before I could question why I was letting some stranger manhandle me, Jen swore and stopped so abruptly I crashed into his back. Amelin. The familiar voice rolled through me, stopping my heart. I peeked around Jen's shoulder, coming face to face with my past. Hi, Cody. Woo! <laughs> Isn't that fun? <laughs> that is so much fun. So, I love space opera. It is, like, one of my earliest loves in terms of any fiction at all. I was raised in a very genre-heavy household, tagging along with my parents to world cons since uh, before I could walk, even. Wow. So, like, I've, I've been steeped in it, but it's still... It's so appealing because every single space opera brings that sense of wonder and not just wonder but the sense of fun that you start with a bar fight and a mysterious stranger and like some jackbooted government thugs and whoop-de-doo here comes adventure yeah <laughs> and away we go yeah yeah it struck me it really struck me the same way that uh, Bujold strikes me a lot. Sorry, for listeners, 
Lois McMaster Bujold, uh, if you're not familiar. Katie, obviously you are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I should say, Lois, in case you're listening, Sifwa Grandmaster Lois McMaster Bujold. We must give her her dues. Yes. So two things struck me about that initially, and one of them is just the way that you wrote the fight at the beginning was really, I think, really emblematic of how fights should be written in that it was, like, it was telling a story, but it wasn't telling the story of every single blow in the fight. Like, I think fight, like, fight scenes and sex scenes, any, like, any sort of, any scene should be doing the work of telling, like, who the characters are, but I think especially fight scenes and sex scenes can fall into this, like, just sort of blow-by-blow kind of, uh, if if you'll excuse the pun. (laughs) Sometimes literally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. It's, you know, I have a lot of fun writing fight scenes and I've gotten a lot of compliments in that exact same vein that you mentioned. So it's Mm -hmm. been, it's, it is really important to me that if you're talking about a fight, like you want to know kind of, you don't just want to know what people are throwing punch wise. You want to know everything else that's kind of happening around you, mm-hmm. especially as the reader. Ironically, it's also very like important as a fighter to be aware of what's going on around mm-hmm. you. So like you don't want to get caught up in that yeah. block, block, punch type of that martial awareness is really vital. And it it was very fun for me as a martial artist to hear the fight scene because you're doing the things that, you know, I've never been in a serious fight. I hope I never have to be in a serious fight. But the things that you notice are the things that feel like when I'm training, when I'm doing just like freestyle training, the things I notice are that very same sort of like, oh, here's what's going on. It's not just what's about to hit me, but what's coming next and what's all around me. And yeah, just really fun. Wanted to throw that out there at the beginning. Awesome. Because I think it's something that I I know the first stories I was writing where I had fight scenes, it was very much like you know, blow by blow, and then I shot this person, and then I shot this person, and oh, I only have this many bullets left, and, like, very much... I mean, I was right out of high school, so if you can imagine the sort of thing that a high school boy would write. (laughs) Oh, you know, if I held a vote on Twitter to see what people wanted me to read, and yeah, if if they had gone with the epic fantasy, which is far older Mm -hmm. than than either of the other two options it it would have been very i think much very similar to what you just described like Mm -hmm. there's a there is a great deal of benefit to you know almost a decade worth of martial arts experience and all this other assorted writing experience that changes how you you know you learn how to write those scenes in a way that's not a let me give you a primer on how this fight went down versus let me tell Mm -hmm. you the story about how this fight went down yeah 
Yeah, for real. And I think I I know I've heard from a variety of people. You don't have to practice martial arts to be able to write a good fight scene, but like talking to people who have practiced martial arts, talking to people who have been soldiers, who have been in law enforcement, who have had those sorts of experiences, you can get a sense of what's important to them because in a fight you're not thinking like, then I punched him and then he punched me and then I gave him an uppercut and then he punched me in the gut. It's like, (laughs) no, here are the, you know, we traded blows and then I made this decisive move or we traded blows and then I saw my opening. Yeah. Yeah. That sort you of want thing. you want to hit those great like moments, you know, like the point where Elsie catches the guy's foot before he hits her and kicks her in the head or mm-hmm. and then you're, you know, just to anchor the reader into a certain moment during the fight, but then you want to go back and give them, you know, this kind of 360 of what is going on yeah. around that. And I feel like sometimes people can fall into the trap of like I think competence porn is really appealing when somebody's <laughs> just ultra good at the thing they're doing. And I think sometimes people mistake sort of shopping list fights for competence porn. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, I'm I'm going to name all the techniques and oh, they're doing this form and oh, they tried to hit me with this throw or whatever. And like, that's not what competence looks like necessarily like there is you know knowing what all the things are that's happening is supreme competence but you know you're not like going around explaining it right it's so i mean i feel like often extreme competence in stuff is that you know your job so well that you don't think about it. Like it's all second mm-hmm. nature. And so you're walking that fine line when you're writing scenes like that and showing, and I, man, I love, I love the term competence porn and I love writing competence porn because mm-hmm. it's, it is, it's such a, I don't know. It's such a rush to be able to write stories about people who are very, very good at what they do. So you, you walk that kind of fine line where you, you need to tell the audience what's happening because most of them are probably not super aware of how mm-hmm. these things work. Yeah, so you need those anchor points to kind of get them really rooted in the story and the scene that's happening. But at the same time, you want that confidence you know, mindset where the person in the fight is not thinking about this because they have done it 8 million times before and... It's all yeah. just muscle memory at that point. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, you do it 10,000 times so that it's in your body, and then the time you actually need to do it, it just flows out of you. Yeah. This reminds me of something that I'm sure other people have said. I am going to credit it to Howard Taylor of Writing Excuses and Schlock Mercenary because he's the person I heard it from which is explain something very simple extremely well and then readers will believe you when you gloss over something that's extremely hand wavy yes <laughs> that you know you're by doing this fight scene like you're setting your character up as this person knows what they're doing this person knows what they're talking about so then later when 
we're talking about warp cores and hyperdrives and all these things, you're going to be like, yeah, of course, a warp core. Yeah, yeah. And you, I mean, there's like, if for folks who write and really enjoy reading like hard science fiction, that's, you know, if you want to spend 15 pages talking about how the warp core works, be my guest. Mm-hmm. It's not my thing. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I will trust you. There's enough basis in previous um, media to make me believe that a warp core is possible. And mm-hmm. I can just roll with it. I don't, I don't need the schematics in order to, like, figure out that this is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. My partner uh, says those sorts of things really bug her because it's basically just the writer or the proxy saying, look how smart I am for 15 pages, and you don't need that. Some people like it. That's fine. Don't want to yuck anybody's yum, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. But, like, it is very much that. Yeah. I'd much rather read read about the people Mm -hmm. when it comes right down to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's something... I'm I'm really glad that you say that because I remember I studied creative writing in college, in undergrad, and there was such an anti-genre bias in a lot of the classes I took because the prevailing thought among professors was that genre fiction is plot-centric writing and... What we want to see is character-centric writing and character-centric stories. And, you know, there is plot-centric writing in science fiction and fantasy and horror. But more often than not, like, the stuff that's getting published nowadays is extremely character-focused. Because people want nuance. They don't just want shiny flashbang, ooh-wow Right. Yeah. And I think I, I'm always so fascinated by this like literary versus genre fight and the, the idea that that literary or genre is bad depending on who you're talking to or that one mm-hmm. doesn't do, you know, one doesn't do characters well and the other one does plot well or vice versa. That you like people read what they enjoy and they tend to gravitate towards what they enjoy and even if it's stuff that sometimes the rest of us you know like twilight we're all kind Mm -hmm. of like wait why is this it obviously resonated with a huge group and it obviously resonated like something about that story spoke Mm -hmm. to people and you can't really knock that like look it's not it's not my thing i read the first book and it made my eyes hurt (laughs) but (laughs) but that's but i'm not a huge vampire fan anyway you know and so i can recognize that and i don't have to dog on it just because other people like it like you said Mm -hmm. as long as it's not actively hurting anybody there's not you know you can't you can't harsh somebody else's squee just because they're really getting a kick out of it and that's yeah and but you i i love that we are seeing so much new material out there and so many new stories that that really do focus on characters and really Mm -hmm. do focus, you know, they have good solid plots, but what you do is you fall in love with the characters. And for me, especially personally, that's what I'm looking for when I read a good book is I, I want those characters that I can grab onto and follow, you know, (laughs) follow right into battle. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is, 
it's really tiresome, especially like there's a bunch of sort of toxic like background misogyny in the like Twilight bashing where it's like, you know, this is something that teen girls like and we can't let them have any fun. Oh, very but much so. It's yeah. so like you know, and and I will cop to the fact that I bashed Twilight for a long time because it was the like the popular thing to do. But it's not it's not like a creative thought to say, oh, this is a thing that teenagers like, let's shit all over it. And it's not constructive in any way. Like, let people like what they like, and rather than saying, oh, this is derivative, oh, this is, you know, sparkly vampires are stupid, let's say, like, oh, what are they getting out of this? How can how can we dig into that and you know, find what the emotional core is, find what is appealing to that. And, you know, my mind as somebody who used to work in a school, as somebody who's friends with a lot of librarians, as somebody who's just pro-book, is like, let's, instead of saying, like, the books you're reading are shitty, don't do that, let's say, okay, you like these books, what other books can you like? Right? Like, it's fabulous. That's, you know, I... I don't read a lot of YA, but I think it's completely fine that people my age, I'm in my 40s, do mm-hmm. read it and enjoy it. I have some very good friends who write some wonderful YA, and it's it's so great to see, you know, in this day and age when some people think that social media is destroying everything, yeah. often, <laughs> and we all spend too much time online and whatever the arguments are, that books are still here. And mm-hmm. people still read books for enjoyment. And yeah. that when, especially as you get older, when your time starts to shrink and get sucked away by other things, like the mm-hmm. fact that people still choose to devote what precious time they have to reading. You know, obviously for me as an author, that's like so super duper important and it's such a like I I can't even express the gratitude accurately in words as to how much it means to me that people choose to spend what limited time they have reading stuff that I have written Mm -hmm. yeah for real and uh to that same point like I have unimaginable gratitude you know how as a writer you like to watch numbers and do rejectomancy and all these things my my podcast dashboard i am constantly refreshing it to see like oh has somebody else listened but the fact that each of these episodes is about an hour long that someone would take an hour out of their day and then to come back and do it again next month is really encouraging to me to hear like yeah people care about you know and and I'm not I don't buy into the social media is destroying the world thing like there are definitely toxic attitudes there there are definitely toxic things happening but this podcast wouldn't happen without social media because like I, I think it is safe to say everybody I've had on this show I know through some form of social media Right. And it's like, I mean, I remember early days, you know, like late 90s, all of that, you know, Mm -hmm. like I met, I met people online through a puzzle book 
called the Merlin Mystery in like 99 or something. Mm-hmm. So like er, like early BBS days, all of that stuff. I freaking traveled to London to meet people that I had met on the internet, which at that time, boy, can you imagine the <laughs> like ruckus that that Oh, caused. the stranger danger. Oh, my parents were really convinced that I was going to die. But like, <laughs> like, can't you just meet a nice person around here? And I was like, what? Like I could just as easily get hijacked yeah. at a bar someplace. Yeah, I love, for all of its failures, I love the internet. I love social media. Like you said, there's some really toxic stuff out there, but it has provided a platform for people who don't have a voice otherwise. And it has provided this kind of awakening for all of us to learn things outside of our normal scope that we just never would have had the chance to experience mm-hmm. if we if we did not have the internet, you know? Yeah. And it's it's really a window, I think, especially for the parts of ourselves that selves that we might not otherwise understand. I know that like people there's a lot of really lousy discourse around like queer Tumblr and people being like, oh, these are fake orientations and whatever, but like there's a generation out there who like there's no it's not a an exaggeration to say that Generation Z is the queerest generation because they have information. Like, holy crap, if I had had access to that stuff when I was 16, like, the -hmm. trajectory of my life would have been distinctly different, I think. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it wouldn't have taken me 23-odd years to figure out (laughs) who I was and what I, and how I felt about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, like, I, it's great. It's so, it's so great to see those kids in, in those other generations get get that kind of support and find communities that will support them and value who they are as human beings. Exactly. Um, Yeah, it it is community. Like, I think people focus too much on the media and not enough on the social. Yeah. So the other thing that you said right at the start of the show that I really wanted to dig into a little bit was that you wrote this book 10 years too early And I think that that's something that is, you know, whether you're writing short or long form, that's something that I think not enough people have a strong enough understanding of, that, like, you can write a good story, and it can be the wrong time, or the wrong market, or the wrong place, and that doesn't... Like, sometimes you trunk a thing because it is bad, sometimes you trunk a thing because it's just... As much as you love it, it's just not resonating. And that's natural. Right. Yeah, and they. I think I misspoke at the beginning. I think I said I wrote this, like, in 2010 or something. But, like, I, the days blur together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. And I, like, I always have to, like, go back and run the timeline. And, and I actually, I think... I think I wrote it in 07 even, so it may have been even earlier than that, but I was shopping it out in like late 2009 and then 2010, early 2010 Mm -hmm. um, was when I wrote the first draft of Behind the Throne, which is the first book in the Andronan War series. And you can see, even in that like short little piece, people who have read Behind the Throne can, will see some of like 
the influence of mm-hmm. that previous work on Hale's story. Which, and I, behind the throne starts with Hale waking up on the floor of her ship, like, covered in blood. So we Ooh. we upped the game with yeah. a very, like, in media res um, beginning to that book. And um, Reluctant Heroes was, like, the last book in about a dozen novels that I had written before of varying things. I mean, I started, the very first novel that I ever wrote was back in, uh, like, 1998, when I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, no, that's not right. Uh, it's okay. Nine, Time is fake. Right? I'm, like, 1993, when I was a junior in high school. <laughs> I was like, that's not right. 1998, you were in college. The The most epically awful alien invasion cast of 10,000 people mm-hmm. convoluted time traveling storyline it it's it's hilariously bad in in um like as only a high schooler i think could write right mm-hmm. and then i just kind of i bounced around i wrote some fantasy i wrote some urban fantasy and then i wrote reluctant heroes and actually wrote all three books in that trilogy in fairly short order. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is it is very much a kind of homage to, like, all of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stories. Um, my love of Doctor Who, my love of British science mm-hmm. fiction, like Red Dwarf and, uh, oh, yeah. like, Blake Seven and all, you know, and the, the original Battlestar Galactica and all of that stuff, um, because I grew up watching so much of that as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it really is just, like, this epic goofiness about a prophecy and a woman who wants absolutely nothing to do with this prophecy. And it's, it's one of my favorite kinds of stories. Right? And it and I got some good feedback from agents when I was shopping it out, but it was always that I have no idea how to sell this. Mm-hmm. Like it's just too weird. Which is like it's such a delight now to see books out there that really are that weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like even Catherine Valenti's like literals called Space Opera, which is which yeah. is very much Douglas Adams inspired and such I mean a, it's Eurovision in space. It's so fantastic and it was so just good. such a great read. And I'm like, yeah, it was like, there we go. Like we're it is as I think I've I have mentioned, or maybe I mentioned it online, that this book, out of all the trunked novels that I have, is probably the only one that maybe is salvageable. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those, mostly it's a question of, do I want to spend the time when I have XYZ already lined up and four yeah. other ideas kind of banging at the door wanting me to take a look at? So <laughs> Yeah, I was just on Twitter this morning and saw last month's guest, C.L. Polk, tweeting about having an idea banging down their door of like it's got all these things and i already have an outline (laughs) oh well shit yeah (laughs) i have four other projects i have to write i don't have time for this oh i I got into it with tasha surrey the other day on twitter because she mentioned she was watching guy Ritchie's king arthur Mm -hmm. and talking about how awful it is because it is relatively awful movie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then I somehow got dragged into the conversation because they were talking about what if, like, gender-bent King Arthur, like, raised in a brothel 
but in space. And somebody uh-huh. was like, yeah, Katie should write that. And I was like, wait a minute. I was over here minding my own business. Yeah. And then for three days straight, I woke up thinking about King Arthur, who I could like give two shits about. I just, I've never really cared about the King Arthur legend. Uh-huh. And, uh, and now I'm like, oh, like you weaseled your way into this slight possibility of the queue. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, but you're at the back of the queue because we've got four other stories in front of you that really need to be told. But yeah, yeah I, that's like the life of a writer. When people yeah. are like, where do you get your ideas? And I'm like, they literally walk up and hate you in the back of the head when you're not yeah. paying attention. <laughs> it's, it's not where do you get your ideas. It's where don't you get your ideas and how do you keep from writing all of them? Basically, which is actually a really fascinating topic. And when you... I. I spent November doing Nano in an attempt to finish the zero draft of Out Past the Stars, which is the mm-hmm. third book in the Fairy and War trilogy, and it's due in February. But so I was I was hanging out talking with a lot of other folks who are relatively either new writers or unpublished writers. Mm-hmm. And and we had a couple of discussions about that. Like how do you focus? Like how do you focus on a story and figure out how to get that from that point A idea to point B completion Mm -hmm. without getting distracted by the next shiny thing because inevitably halfway through that trip from point A to point B is this big roadblock called work Mm -hmm. (laughs) that involves mood right like that involves figuring out how to make this story work and how to like actually plot something and one of the things I kept telling folks is it doesn't have to be perfect. Like mm-hmm. you just have to finish it. Because all zero drafts are this horrible, horrible pile of shit. Yeah. That that you're just like, what what am I gonna do with this now? And that is exactly what edits are for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is to go back through and figure that out. And so yeah, like for me personally, ideas come and go all the time. Mm-hmm. If I find myself thinking about them and asking that age-old important question, what if such Mm -hmm. and such happens, that's where they start kind of making it into the queue of, you know, where are we in this whole thing? Three years ago, three years ago, I was watching the latest remake of The Magnificent Seven, Mm -hmm. and my brain was like, hey... What if Seven Samurai, but all girls, in space? I'd read that. <laughs> right? And so, and now, here we are three years later. I haven't had a chance to work on it, but it has consistently, every so often, my brain goes, hey, remember that? What mm-hmm. if, blah, 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 you know, I, I actually got to the, that one made it to full outline status, sent to the agent, the agent tore it apart, asked me a bunch of questions, you yeah. know, made me really angry. <laughs> was like, oh, why do you ask me these difficult, really appropriate questions? Yeah. Um, How dare and then you I would, do your job? Yeah, right? And then I go back and think about it. I'm like, oh, okay, here's where this is not going to work. Here's where we need to do something different. And so, yeah, that's, that is a so some of that stuff, all the, the whole time I'm writing other things and just letting my brain work on it in the background. And that's about all you can do. You have mm-hmm. to train yourself to kind of focus on whatever that original project is and keep pushing through the, ooh, this is really shiny. I should follow this 
new story idea somewhere else because everybody knows that's the best part of it is that little initial yeah. development phase. Yeah. Yeah, I think... So I think there are a couple of ways that I've sort of been learning to deal with that both as a writer and, like, in my day job, which is not a writer. Um, I, I work in like the systems engineering pod of my company and it is very much you know I've been doing IT for eight years at this point something like and it's very much the same sort of mood as being a writer of I have this thing I have to work on but also squirrel yeah (laughs) except in in IT land, squirrel is generally somebody else presents you with a squirrel rather than like, oh, here's this neat idea. It's, oh, let you have you have a little bit of space on your plate. Let me drop a large object onto that plate as well. Yeah, here's my box of squirrels. I'm going to dump it onto yeah. your desk. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in, in my day job, the way that I can keep track of that is tickets. Like, I have, if I don't have a ticket for something, I will open a ticket for it. But in my writing life, I tend to, you know, if a, if an idea jumps out at me that is wholly not appropriate for the thing I'm working on, I just write it down. And, you know, nine times out of ten, I write it down and it makes zero sense to me when I come back to it a couple months later. Yep. And every once in a while it makes perfect sense. And it, it's those ones that make sense, and like you're saying, the ones that keep digging at you that are the ones you you pursue. My, my rule for tattoos is very sort of similar of, like, you know, once you get one tattoo, you keep on wanting to get tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> and... Or I, I think most people have that experience. Anyway. Right, I was going to say, unless you're my partner who got this massive back piece done as their first <laughs> tattoo and ha- has never had any interest, any no, I've never heard them say like, yes, I'm going to do this again. Yeah. Um, you know, and whereas I, yeah, I got my first one and then subsequently like 34 tattoos later. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I am no longer appropriate for yeah. <laughs> regular work. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But the the rule that I've been trying to hold for myself is, you know, yeah, okay, I can have an idea, uh, bang wow, neat idea for a tattoo, but I have to want it six months later. Yeah. Yeah. I've broken that rule, like, twice. But I I don't regret, like, having broken it. Mm-hmm. Even then, they were, like, relatively rare circumstances. The Captain America Winter Soldier tattoo is... Nice. Was, like... Like, the day after we saw Winter Soldier, I called my tattoo artist and was like, when can you get me in? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, I have an appointment on Thursday. And I was like, I will see you on Thursday. And uh, my best friend, it's and it says with you till the end of the line on it. And my best friend has the same tattoo. Like, she, we got it for her, like, a year later um, on her other arm, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And then I have a, a Rebel tattoo from Star Wars on my mm-hmm. left hand, which was 
we had a, an appointment to get work done and we went to see Rogue One before. <laughs> um, and when we came in, I was like, will you do one more for me? <laughs> she, of course. She was like, yes, sure I will. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I don't generally, generally the good rule is, yeah. Cause boy, if I had gotten tattoos that I wanted when I was 18 years old, that Ooh, boy, not, you know, yeah. You're always like, Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to sit on this for a while and see which, if it works. Which goes back to the epic fantasy that you wrote in high school, and which goes back to the, like, the novels that I started writing in high school, where, like, you know, I was, I was writing these in, like, early 2000s, where it was very much, you know, we were starting to think about the surveillance state, and, like, I'd been reading 1984 and reading Yevgeny Zamyatin's We... we So much. So good. Yeah. And, you know, writing this, these very earnest, and this is like pre-Hunger Games, pre-dystopia craze in YA, but, you know, I was writing these, like, very earnest, very just, like, only a high schooler would write these sorts of dystopia freedom fightery YA stories and I'd never like get very far in them because I honestly I would just say squirrel and go do something else but it was very much that sort of thing and I'm like oh yeah I'm I'm glad I didn't sink a whole lot of time into that right but they're always I I constantly push the narrative that there's no such thing as wasted words. Mm-hmm. That that all the writing that we do, all the trunks novels, all the half finished ideas, all the abandoned like outlines for people who outline, I am not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> all of that stuff teaches us something as writers, as authors. And and it's always super valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah, like the the epic fantasy that I wrote, I loved. I have a tattoo of the shield from the... It was about um, this order of knights called the Knights of the White Rose. And I it, and I wrote, like, three stories, three full novels out of it. And mm-hmm. had, like, four other things planned out and bits and pieces. At one point, I'd done a calculation, and this was more than ten years ago, I think. that I And I have, have written something close to two million words at that point, just... On, across the board on everything. Nice. Um, and so it's always, you know, but I, like, I learned everything. I learned how to describe worlds better. I learned how to build worlds. I learned mm-hmm. all those pitfalls when you're born with privilege and live with privilege your whole life of how you treat marginalized characters and how you write worlds from your bias and your perspective and you see Mm -hmm. things that you think are totally normal and they are in fact like not and not at all appropriate to be writing Mm -hmm. which is why yeah like you you want to write stuff that you are then not going to publish that's Mm -hmm. i try and impress people with that all the time like if you hit with your first book that's fantastic but if you don't, and let's be honest, 99.9% of people do not. Right. It's a good thing. <laughs> Trust <Yeah>. me. <laughs> if I had published that, and even I, I got some agent bites on that that epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And thinking about it now, I'm just like, oh my gosh, if that had been published, like I would be 
super embarrassed and super like you can read it if you want, but be aware it was written yeah. by, you know, early 2000 me who did not have a fucking clue about how the world works because I grew up white middle class. And, right. You know, and now I have slightly better perspective on this whole situation. Yeah. I've read it in a couple of different places, I think because he just wrote one introduction for it. Uh, but the first a short story that Terry Pratchett wrote and got published. He said he wrote in high school and sold it to a magazine. And in the introduction, he writes, at the end of it, he just writes like, and now I'm sticking my ears in uh, my, I'm sticking my fingers in my ears, la la la, I'm not listening. Go ahead and read this if you must, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I do 100% agree with there's no such thing as wasted work because it is all like taking it back to martial arts it's all practice yeah it's all learning learning the forms and learning how to do things i don't remember the words the japanese words but there are two japanese words for repetition and this is something that my sensei says once every year or two because he you know has a set of stories that he tells and makes sure to cycle them back as necessary but that there's doing the thing because you have to and then the other one is mindful repetition that it is doing the thing and noticing at each step what you are doing and that's that's what doing writing exercises should be and that's what you should be trying to pay attention to any time you're writing things. It's like, okay, what am I doing this time that I didn't do last time? What are the things I learned from my previous, you know, like, I wrote this story and I really loved it and it just didn't get a hit. What did I learn from that? What were the things I loved in that? And how can I recapture that? Yeah. And learning that it's, sometimes it's okay to write stuff like just for yourself. Like, even mm -hmm. if it doesn't, even if it doesn't work, like, I wrote a story, I really loved it. Nobody else liked it. That's yeah, great. Like I loved it. I love writing, and I and the essential part of keeping that joy of writing when you turn it into a job, mm -hmm. because writing for a living is a job. Yep, is remembering to do that and find that joy in the things that you write, and to sometimes just write stuff for yourself, and you know mm -hmm. you don't have to share it. Learning, like, to let go of that need for the approval from other people and feedback from other people and and just writing stuff for yourself and not actually showing it to anybody is, I think, part and parcel of learning that. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I just talked on Twitter the other day about burnout and, like, how, how difficult it is to oh, do yeah. this, you know, I setting even setting aside, like, the trash fire and everything else that goes on and just the simple act of juggling something as a creative endeavor that you have turned into work it's possible because i think this all came about somebody was like if you if you love what you do you'll never burn out and mm -hmm. <laughs> we're all like that is such horseshit yeah like that's... it is distinctly possible to burn out <laughs> from doing anything even if you love it yeah yeah for sure so, Katie, we're getting towards the end of the show. I do want to make sure that we can just step into this time machine over here for a second Ooh. and 
just wanted to know if there's anything that you could go back and tell baby writer KB Wagers that you really wish you had known. It's funny because we we were just talking about this and in that in that the Twitter thread where I was talking about burnout. Like I've been thinking so much about if I would have done anything differently, mm-hmm. what I would have told myself because the last three years have been such a whirlwind. And it, I guess the best way for me to do that would be to step back even further, you know, into like 1990s me and just that whole agony of querying and wondering if you are ever going to get an agent, wondering if you are ever going to get published, wondering mm-hmm. if you are just beating your head against a wall and tell, you know, yeah, baby writer me that you just like keep going. You like you keep writing. I tell people this all the time. Just keep mm-hmm. writing because this business is a strange combination of talent and hard work, and privilege, and luck. Mm-hmm. For sure. Just, woo. Yeah. And maybe don't drink so much. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard on you the older you get. <laughs> yeah, that's that seems like solid advice. Like, right? You know. <laughs> you know there's a possible problem when you walk into your local liquor store and they greet you by name. Mm-hmm. Like... And that's, I was like, in in my defense, one of the guys who now works at my local liquor store used to work at my UPS store. And so we talked a lot because I ship a lot of stuff, obviously. And so he knows me and he knows that I write and he knows my books. And so, but it was still kind of a shock yesterday when I walked in to pick something up and heard, hey, Katie, how are you? And I was like, oh, dear God, I swear I'm not in here every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Katie, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, You have a book coming out on March 3rd? I do. It's a a brand new series. Um, It is a um, Space Coast Guard. Cool. Is is like the best way to put it. But I also keep telling people it is is like Dodgeball, Mm -hmm. um, the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. But not like dodgeball, <laughs> because ironically, it has absolutely nothing to do with dodgeball. However, it is a rather zany, hope punk space opera about an interceptor crew of the near-Earth orbital guard, following them as they do their job, which is essentially to protect the people and planets in the solar system and Trappist. And also as they try to reclaim their honor in the boarding games, which is an intermilitary competition Mm -hmm. um, that they lost by two points the year before. And so there are a lot of jokes. There's uh, found family, if you're a big fan of that. There's um, some really strong family themes. There is a rather terrifying mystery and there's some what i thought turned out to be some pretty fun sports competitions <laughs> for the boarding game nice. um, which involves uh a s- six competitions mm-hmm. 
hacking competitions, a piloting competition, a boarding action, sword fighting, Ooh. and cage, cage matches. And one of the members of Zuma's Ghost, which is the Interceptor team, is undefeated in her cage match career. And um, so even though her team has lost, she has won every every match that she's been in. Um, and the Navy team brings a ringer in to try and knock her off her throne. It's, <laughs> it's quite a lot of fun. It was an unexpected twist to the whole story. And um, I, people probably won't expect it to turn out the way it does. But yeah, I'm super excited. And it's called The Pale Light in the Black. It's the first of the Neo G adventures. Um, I'm working on the second one right now. And that'll be out sometime in 2021, I think. Fantastic. So. And that comes out March 3rd. Yeah. Uh, listeners, you can pre-order it from your local bookseller or wherever else you get books. Where can listeners find you elsewhere on the interwebs? Um, you primarily can find me hanging out on Twitter most days, even though my handle says that I'm like not on Twitter until 2020. <laughs> that's, that's mostly a reminder to me every time I go on Twitter to not be on. Yeah. Um, but Bad I, writer, I, no biscuit. Yeah, right. I do tend to be on um, in the mornings, Mountain Standard Time. Uh, and it's, it's just KB Wagers. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Midway Brawler if you like pictures of cats and plants. That's kind of primarily my Instagram. I don't do a lot of book promo on there. Um, yeah, it's mostly pictures of all the green stuff that I like to grow and my fuzzy crew of cats who are occasionally adorable and occasionally a huge pain in my ass. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like cats. Well, that yeah. is absolutely my jam, so I'm going to follow you immediately. <laughs> uh, listeners, we will have links to all of that in the show notes, so keep a lookout for that as well. Katie, again, thank you so, so much for joining us. Listeners, join us again next month on March 20th when we will have Jordan Carella on. Very excited about that episode. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I just have enjoyed this immensely, podcasting. Uh, this is the final episode of season one, heavy air quotes, <laughs> of Tales from the Trunk. And it's been just such a blast to do this show over the last 12 months. Uh, I really appreciate you being on here. Listeners, I appreciate you joining us and hope that you... Continue to join us as we keep doing this for the foreseeable future. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>